Welcome to another episode of Bitches Love Sports. I'm Bitch 2, and there is no Bitch 1 or Bitch 3 today, but I do have a guest coming on in a few minutes that I'm really excited about having on the podcast today. Um, It was kind of put together in a couple of days, but I think we're going to have a great conversation both about his story and uh, about the Cowboys, which he spends a lot of time talking about, if that's a clue to anyone who may or may not follow us on Twitter. Um, But... (laughs) We are going to start off with shout outs and call outs. I actually have show notes, unlike the last two recordings that I did with Bitch One. If you're like, two, I thought there was only one. Well, one of them was actually so, um, we just we just weren't prepared. Um, and so it never got released. But if you follow us on Instagram, you'll probably see a, a few clips from that. Um, but yeah, let me get into these shout outs and call outs because this is yet another one of those days where the guest is supposed to come on at a certain time and I want to try to be ready. So first, uh, this is more of an update than a shout out or a call out. And it is concerning former Atlanta Dream players, Crystal Bradford and Courtney Williams. Now, a few weeks back, we talked about the fact that they were not going to be resigned to the Atlanta Dream following the release of a video of an altercation that happened back in May with these two particular players. And I think there was another former player involved. And so at the time, we just said that they weren't going to be resigned to the Dream. Since then, the WNBA has actually issued a suspension for Crystal and Courtney for one and two games respectively. And this is all related to the same altercation. Um, So basically, after that video of the altercation went viral, that's when they were notified shortly thereafter by the Atlanta Dream that they would not be resigned. Initially, when the altercation happened, all the Atlanta Dream had to go on was the word of these particular players. And so once I saw the video and realized that the reality of the situation wasn't exactly the way that it had been explained, that's when the dream decided to take action. So that's why there was that long gap between May and October before the Atlanta Dream actually did anything. Now, both of these players are free agents now since they're not being resigned. And so the suspensions would be served starting with the first regular season games with their new teams, assuming they get picked up. Now, it's hard to know how likely that is. You know, in some other sports, it's uh, it's a little bit more obvious what the needs of teams are and what the strengths of players are. Um, with these two particular players in the WNBA, that particular type of conversation hasn't happened around this situation. So to be honest, I'm not sure. Uh, Courtney is 27 and Crystal just turned 28. So they're still very young, but they're also old enough to where it makes sense that people would expect them to make different decisions. Now, since I don't know the details of the situation, I won't say whether or not the fact that they ended up involved in a physical altercation like this was reasonable. The only thing that I heard was what everybody else heard, which was that supposedly the fight started because of a comment that someone made about Courtney Williams' girlfriend. I don't know what the comment was or anything else. So I, I really can't say whether or not, you know, it made sense for them for them to end up in a fight. There are some people to whom, you know, there's no situation that would justify this. And there are some people who I'm sure would say like, yeah, if someone said something about my significant other, I could see myself becoming violent. So I won't comment on that part. To me, the most egregious part of this whole situation was the fact that when they were first questioned about the situation by the Atlanta Dream, they lied about it. They lied about it. That to me would be the biggest issue as an owner, manager, coach, 
would be the fact that we went to you, we trusted you to tell your side of the story and to be honest with us so that we can make the best decision and you lied. And so instead of us being able to handle this the way we would have liked to handle it or get ahead of it if necessary, we had to wait until the world saw this viral video of you getting in a fight with these women, which was, you know, from the sounds of it, it was a more violent fight than what people previously thought. And the Atlanta Dream players played more of a role in the physical part of it than what people previously thought. So basically they crossed the line of it being self-defense. They got to the point where, you know, even if they did feel like they had to defend themselves initially, they got to a point in that video where they were like, you know, we're we're not going to defend ourselves and go away. We are going to beat these bitches' asses. And I think that was the part that kind of made everybody say like, hmm, this isn't what we thought it was. Um, y'all were definitely aggressors at some point during this situation. Um, and this was a way more violent situation than we thought. So to me, it's the line that I think might come back to haunt them because people need to be able to trust you whenever you're a part of a a sports organization. These organizations, they rely on their brand and their image to make money. And, you know, not to say that every athlete has always been on top of things when it comes to being a model citizen, but at least teams need to be able to know what they're dealing with. I mean, they need to know that at least if something does happen, you know, they can take the steps necessary to handle it in a way that's best for the organization and not have to worry about finding things out later or being blindsided. Nobody likes that. All right. The next shout out goes to Spencer Radler. Spencer has decided to leave the University of Oklahoma after this year. Now, I know this may sound like a bad thing to a lot of people, Um, And it's happened because of less than ideal circumstances, right? But honestly, the reason why it's a shout out and not a call out or anything like that is because I really do applaud him for having the guts to search for a situation that's a better fit for him. Um, This is his sophomore year. He started off the year as a Heisman favorite and then ended up being a backup to a, a true freshman, you know? So for whatever reason, whether it's that the scheme isn't a good fit, the culture isn't a good fit, he's not getting the training and coaching that he feels like he needs for whatever reason this situation isn't working out the way that he'd like it to go someone who works with him said that his goal is to be a a round one draft pick you know and the way things are going at uh, the university of oklahoma it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case you know no one's talking about him as a heisman favorite anymore no one's talking about him as a potential round one draft pick And instead of him saying like, oh, woe is me, you know, this isn't my fault, you know, and blaming other people, he's saying, you know what, I'm just going to go find a place where I can thrive, find a place where um, I'm a better fit, a place that's a better fit for me. I don't know exactly what he's looking for. That information hasn't been released publicly, but whatever it is, he's seen fit to say the University of Oklahoma is not the best place for me. I'm going to go find something else after this season. And that can be a scary move. If you listen to any athlete talk about, you know, searching for a different scholarship opportunity, searching for a different school, a different team, um, it can it can feel like you're jumping into an unknown situation, you know, especially with it being that he's finishing this season at a different position as far as his perceived value than where he started. So that could be very scary for him to say, like, you know, I don't know who's going to pick me up. You know, what if it's not as good of a school? You know, what if it's not as notable? What if the competition isn't there? There's a lot of things for a person to be nervous about in this situation. So to Spencer and his team, 
Um, I just want to say, I, I think that this is a good move. I think it sets a good example. I'm sure you're inspiring other people um, to be to be brave, to be bold, and to go after what they want. So, Spencer, um, I wish you the best. I know we haven't had the best comments about you here on the show, but really do wish you the best. And, you know, I hope we have a reason to bring you up in the future. It'll be interesting to see where you go from this point moving forward. All right, the next shout out goes to the Phoenix Suns because they are on a 13 game winning streak. This is really awesome. Folks are already predicting a Western Finals meetup between them and the Golden State Warriors. And that's saying a lot because they didn't start off the season so hot. And a lot of people were not really um, speaking of them in the best lights. They kind of wrote them off very quickly. Like literally they started off the season one and three, four games after, <laughs> four games out of an 82 game season. And people were already like, oh yeah, last year when they made the finals, that was a fluke. The Suns just aren't that good. You know, we were expecting, to, expecting them to have the success that they had last year, but you know, that was really an accident. After four games, this is what people are doing. They were one and three, and now they're 14 and three. They're killing it. Um, Devin Booker just seems to have really matured as a player. There was a time where if he started off a game horribly, you would just kind of be like, oh, it's going to be a, a, a bad night for D-Book. And, you know, people like me would kind of cover our eyes like, oh, no. Um, but I've seen games this season and, where, you know, he didn't start off that great, but ended the game really strong and, and ended up doing things that really helped his team take home the W. Uh, Chris Paul, same thing, just an unprecedented level of leadership abilities. Uh, I love watching this team. But yeah, if you're a fan of the show, you know how how much I love watching Devin Booker play. Um, Chris Paul, too. And to be honest, Jay Crowder, same thing. He's kind of hot. Well, not kind of hot. Jay Crowder's really hot. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I just love watching this team. I love seeing what they're doing during this part of the season. Now, as far as the finals prediction, you know, I'm not one of those people to make predictions like that. People seem to really be into making these predictions for things that are like really far off. I'm like, we're not even 25% of the way into the season. So I, you know, I'm just not one of those people that's like, oh, here's what's going to happen. Now, would I love to see them get to the Western Finals? Absolutely. Uh, would I love to watch a series between them and the Golden State Warriors? Absolutely. Um, the way they're playing right now, I even think that, you know, they. Sh I wouldn't be surprised if they did make it. You know, they are playing as one of the best teams in the West. Actually, one of the best teams in the NBA, in my opinion. Um, so I will say that I'm rooting for them to get there. I would love to have another year of playoffs where I get to watch the Suns night in and night out on national broadcast. But um, as far as, you know, hanging my hat on that, I that's just not my thing. So like... <laughs> People don't come to this show for predictions, um, but they're doing really well. Like I said, 13 game winning streak. And not long ago, Devin Booker even uh, sent out a tweet about how there was a time where they were getting one nationally broadcast game a year. And the week when he sent out that tweet, they were actually on ESPN twice. And that made a lot of sense. I was like, hmm, that explains why I didn't know he existed. And I didn't know the Phoenix Suns were getting so good. But, you know, now they're on TV all the time. Their next game is tonight actually tipping off in a few minutes um but their next nationally televised game is going to be on nba tv this saturday november 21st at 6 30 p.m central against the brooklyn nets so i'm really looking forward to watching that one it's going to be on nba tv now 
The last shout out goes out to the International Olympic Committee. And it's because they've issued new guidelines on transgender athletes. Dude, I did not think a change like this would happen so soon, but I'm really excited about it. Like the Olympics just happened. They just had a whole thing where, you know, the the scientific evidence that was used to keep uh, Castor Semenya from competing. They found out that there were flaws in that evidence. And not a lot was said after that. They were just like, oh, the research was flawed. And that was kind of that. And because there was no response, it kind of made me a little bit pessimistic about how this was going to be handled moving forward. And these guidelines, honestly, I'm really kind of impressed with how far they went as far as going contrary to what they said before. So their previous guidelines, their previous rules were issued in 2015. And those rules mostly inhibited opportunities for trans women. And it required trans women to lower their testosterone to below a specific amount for 12 months before competing. Um, we have an episode called Let's Talk About Sex and Gender in Sports. If you want to know more of the details on that, you can listen to that episode. But yeah, there were some really strict requirements and testing for trans women athletes in, in order for them to be allowed to compete. And a lot of it set rules on who was considered a woman, who could compete with women. So Castor Semenya, for example, she had natural testosterone levels that were considered too high for her to compete with other women, but they also didn't let her compete with the men either. They just stopped her from competing. They stopped her from having a career in track and field, which was really weird to me because I'm just like, okay, if you don't think she should be competing with women, but you also don't think she should be competing with men, then what exactly are you saying? You know, it was it was a really odd move to me, but I guess it just took them some time to figure out. The new set of rules is more so guidance for international federations to create their own rules. In other words, in sports where there is less of a question about competitive advantage or where, like it is in roller derby, inclusivity is the standard and trans athletes are treated as any other athlete, federations governing those sports can create their own sets of rules instead of having to adjust to the regulations set forth by the IOC. So this is really exciting. Um, the new guidance is actually called, get this title, it's actually called the Framework on Fairness, Inclusion, and Non-Discrimination on the Basis of Gender Identity and Sex Variations. And according to a November 21st article on insider.com, the guidance acts as a set of non-binding recommendations for each sporting body to consider when creating their eligibility criteria and participation rules for athletes. They include that transgender women should not have to reduce their testosterone levels to compete in the women's sports category. That's major. Athletes should be allowed to compete in a team that best aligns with their self-determined gen gender identity as long as they meet certain criteria. That's also major. And so that certain criteria, that's going to depend on those sports federations. Um, no athlete should be barred from competing due to an assumed advantage. Assumed. Which, in a lot of these situations, that advantage was assumed. It was based on all these assumptions that we make about what it means to have testosterone or what it means to have been um, assigned male or female at birth, you know? So now we can't make assumptions like that to assume an advantage. On that note, anyone who is barred from competing should be done so on an evidence-based approach. This decision can also be appealed. So now not only do these federations have to have evidence in order to bar someone from competing, the decision can be appealed. 
So even if they do present a certain level of evidence, now there's a route for athletes to say, I don't think this evidence applies to me, or I don't think this investigation was conducted properly, whatever it may be. All athletes have a right to privacy in regards to their medical information being made public. This is also really huge. So now if something comes up during one of these investigations, they don't necessarily have to have that blasted out in headlines about what they were signed at as birth or what their testosterone levels are or whatever else might be going on with their chromosomes or with their biology that maybe they didn't really, you know, want to be interviewed about in a public setting, for example. You know, it's not always about people knowing. Sometimes it's about how people respond once they do find out. And, you know, the way your teammates might respond to you a lot of times is different than the way the media might respond to you or the way the public in general might respond to you, you know? And finally, according to Insider.com, these guidelines state that everyone, regardless of their gender identity, expression, and or sex variations, should be able to participate in sports safely and without prejudice. So based on this, this is really huge, you guys. Um, I'm really hoping that this means positive changes for my trans and non-binary and otherwise genderqueer friends and community members who want to compete in sporting events, but have always felt like their path as far as their um, role in competitive sports was limited or who just quite frankly felt uh, discriminated against. I don't know if Caster Semenya plans on competing anymore. I don't know what her plans are, but I I do hope that this means positive change for, for her and people like her. This only came out a few days ago. Like I said, this article in Insider.com came out on the 21st. I think the actual guidelines were released sometime this week. So this just happened. So we have a little bit of time to see how particular sports federations respond to this. But it's just really exciting to see that at least organizations are trying to find some sense of inclusivity and some way to not have to prohibit people from competing to where they can find a path. I think this will open things up for things like, you know, if there does need to be a different categorization of athletes, um, you know, whether it's not based on gender at all or whether we examine gender differently or we examine, you know, skill level differently, um, at least this is a step in the right direction. I don't know if these guidelines are going to be executed perfectly, and I don't think anybody's asking for perfect. I think people are asking for people to correct wrongs, especially wrongs that are based on prejudice and discrimination, and to take steps in the right direction and to actually do the best that they can to try to be inclusive. It's like, yes, we want competition to be fair, but you know, sometimes, especially in recent history, things have been done in the name of fairness that were still not very fair, quite honestly. So we still have a little bit of time before our guest joins us. Um, So one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is the Dallas Cowboys. And anybody who's been paying attention to, oh, our guest is here. So (laughs) before I jump into that topic, I'm going to go ahead and get him introduced and have him join us. So the mystery guest that I talked about at the beginning of the episode is actually former Dallas Cowboys wide receiver, Jesse Holly. So everybody, welcome Jesse to the broadcast. What's going on? Nothing much. I just finished oh, yeah. foot. You got the Saints blanket back there, so we're already, <laughs> we're you're already old for one. This is gonna be a, gonna be a quick one. <laughs> sorry, I I'm I'm still stocking up on my Cowboys stuff. I'm sorry. I'm like a new Cowboys fan. So it's all, it's all good. So um, 
how's how's your week going? Um, I mean, it's good. I can't complain. Um, Thanksgiving's tomorrow. We actually celebrate in the in the Holly household and and we actually celebrate tonight on Wednesday because tomorrow I cover the Cowboys for uh, A to Z Sports Dallas. And so during my playing days for the Cowboys and then soon thereafter, I've always covered the Cowboys. So we've always worked on Thanksgiving. So uh, in the Holly household, it's uh, it's Thanksgiving uh, on Wednesday. So my mom, uh, my mom is cooking, finishing up the last little bit. I got a couple sample tastes of uh, nice. and so I jumped up here to, to get in the call with you and I'll be back downstairs in a little bit to finish uh, finish Thanksgiving. Well, thank you for stepping away from what I'm sure is delicious food to talk with me. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's almost ready. It's almost ready to go. Awesome. So before we jump into the really major topics of the day, I want to talk a little bit about your story for people who may not be as familiar with who you are. To my knowledge, you are the first and only person to ever get a roster spot on an NFL team due to re- a reality show. Yes. And not only did it happen because of a reality show, honestly, when I heard about how the whole thing played out, like basically watch your documentary, right? I was just like, this sounds like a Disney Channel original movie. <laughs> like this does not sound real at all. So, <laughs> I mean, just just break it down for people who might not know, like what exactly happened from the time that you left college, entered the NFL, and then ended up leaving and ended up ending up with the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah, so, you know, graduated college, University of North Carolina, go Tar Heels. And my first team was actually the Cincinnati Bengals. Um, And so that's where I originally got my start in the NFL. And I, you know, the funny thing about that was that, and this is why I kind of cut some of the young guys some slack, because you enter this new space and you, you go from being a poor college student or poor person in general because um, a lot of the athletes that come into the NFL, you you see all the draft day story. They don't they don't come from much statistics say they shouldn't even be there, but because of their blessed talent that they they make it to the NFL. And so you come in and now you have all you have access to everything. You, you know the money is there, the notoriety is there, the publicity is there, the everything. I mean, you name it, you have access to it. And so for me, it was you know it was it was just living that life, right? I got in the locker room and I'm just like doing all this crazy stuff and not really focusing on what I was supposed to do to be in the National Football League. I thought it would just come easy like everything else kind of did as far as athletics. And for the first time in my life, after I was released, uh, I was on the Bengals uh, practice squad and I was released like like after like week nine or whatever, it, you know, maybe. Mm. That was the first time in my life that I, I didn't have a, like really like my really, really like adult life. I didn't have sports. And I identified with, with sports so much and my identity was so caught up in sports. Is at that time, if you would have asked me, who is Jesse Holly, I would have told you I'm a football player. And that's the absolute wrong approach to take. You learn that really, really fast is that you better find yourself an identity outside of the game because it gets taken away just like that. And if you're dependent upon that game to, uh, to solidify who you are, you're going to be looking for yourself for a really long time because this is a vicious game uh, and a vicious business that we call the NFL. Then after that, kind of, you know, money dried up, money dried up, uh, teams weren't calling. And next thing you know, I look up, uh, I'm living in Durham, North Carolina, um, in the same area I kind of went to school in. Uh, and I was living on a friend's couch because I was too embarrassed to go back home. I'm originally from New Jersey. So I was too embarrassed to go back home 
Because you don't want to go back to the place where all the haters was like, see, I knew he wasn't going to make it. He just like, he think he's better than us. So I was like, I, I, I didn't want to go back and face that. I just wasn't ready to face that. So I went back to North Carolina and then, you know, thank God I had a good family friend that was there and, and she let me live in the, in the back room on a futon. And I begin, you know, I'm a, I'll tell you one thing about me is um, I ain't too proud to beg and I will work. I will work. I will work. I will work. And I found myself working as a security guard. Because at that time, in 2008, we were, we were in a recession. Yeah, we were in a I recession. remember that. <laughs> like, I had a college degree, and it was like, nah, we don't have, like, it was like, nah, no jobs, nothing. You're too qualified. You're overqualified. So I, I ended up finding myself working as a security guard um, at night from 11 to 7. And then <clears throat> I worked at T-Mobile from, from 10 to 3 o'clock, and I would train from 7.30 to 9.30 every single day. And then the whole, you know, list of things. And I don't, I mean, that's a, if you've seen a documentary, you've seen, you know, or heard my story, a series of events happened and it led up to a phone call from a production company and then fourth and long happened. And I thought it was a joke. And I ended up still following that dream. I quit a job and didn't have another job to go to. I still was dirt poor um, and it all just worked out. And, you know, it was, at the end of it all, there were over, I found out at the end of fourth and long that there were over a hundred thousand applications that were sent in. Wow. And uh they, you know, old school, like you had to fax them in. It wasn't no scanning them, <laughs> it was like fax them in. Um they auditioned, um, they auditioned twenty something thousand in five different locations. It was Orlando, that's why I did my audition at was in Orlando, Ohio, Dallas, and two in California. They auditioned over 20,000 people. Out of that 20,000, they picked 50 um, to kind of do this seven-day sequester-type combine thing. From that 50, they picked 12 to do fourth and long. Um, and we lived – like, you know, you see some of these reality TV shows, and they're like, oh, camera goes off, and you're like in this fancy mansion or in this house, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. It wasn't. It wasn't. We lived in the Cotton Bowl. We legit lived in the locker rooms in the Cotton wow. Bowl. Right there in South Dallas. Right there at Fair Park, we were in the Cotton Bowl. Uh, we lived there for two months, and we didn't have access to anything. No internet, no phones, no uh, no cable, no radio, no iPods, iPads, nothing. So you this had, was a mental test, too. <laughs> as well as a physical test. Like you, it, was, it was basically jail because you had to write letters like to, to talk to your people. And then you would have to like win different competitions to get like a, a two-minute phone call. You know? Wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it, was, it was like that, and you're living, you're living like really head to foot. Like there were six beds in each in each locker room, but your bed is facing another bed, and it's another bed, and then there's two beds facing this way. So you got six people in there. Like they fart, you smell it. If feet smell bad, wow. you smell it. and trust and believe you me, it was a lot of guys in there who wasn't the most hygienic. And from there. 12 guys went on uh, to do the show and one came out victorious. That one was me. And I spent three seasons uh, with the Cowboys before going to New England. And after New England, I, I, I gracefully, I gracefully bowed out to the NFL and moved on to the next career of my life. That is awesome. And just like a couple of things that I want to reiterate for people who don't believe this story is unbelievable enough <laughs> on top of just the hundred thousand applicants, just even for a team to to put up a roster spot as right. a prize on a reality show. Right. I feel like that's something only Jerry Jones would do. 
Only, um, it's, <laughs> it's something only Jerry Jones would do, and it's something only Jerry Jones would do for Michael Irvin. Right. That was going to be my next point. It's, it's right. something only Michael Irvin would come up with. It's something only Jerry Jones would do, and it's something yeah. Jerry Jones would only do for Michael Irvin. 100%. So just everything that went into this whole thing happening for you is just unbelievable. And when you mentioned having that as your identity, like I feel like a lot of people who listen to this podcast can relate to that because a lot of people who listen are skaters who play roller derby like myself. And even though, you know, we're not at the level as far as the professional benefits of the sport as, you know, an an NFL team, I think a lot of us can relate to our sport being our identity in some way, or at least being a big part of our identity. And I think for maybe the average fan or for people who don't play sports, it's very easy to just look at it as like, oh, it's it's just a game. Like, you know, if you don't play football, just go find another job, whatever. And it's not always just about the amount of money or the social benefits that you can get from being part of an NFL team. For a lot of athletes, it really is like, no, this is who I am. This is what I do. And if I'm not doing this, then what am I doing with my life? Like, what is my life turned into, you know? And, you no, know, you're absolutely right. And that's the absolute, still worst place to be. I'm going to be honest with you. It really is the worst place to be because you give this power of your life to someone else. Mm-hmm. And, and and that's where I found myself. When, when, when I got the call from the Bengals that I was being released, um, the good thing that I did that was my grandmother taught me was I paid my apartment off for six months in advance. Mm-hmm. So I had somewhere to live. Um, and But I sat in that apartment and I was so lost. Because everything that I identified with was in a game that belonged to someone else. That wasn't my game. The NFL is not my game. That game belongs to 32 other owners who can do as they please, when they please, how they please, to whoever it is they want to. And when I got released, they told me, they said, you know, you just so happen to be the low man on the totem pole. We had got... We had we had we had a rash of injuries on the defensive side of the ball, and I was I was one of the you know again it came down to oh just numbers. They didn't tell me I wasn't fast enough. I could fix that. They didn't tell me I wasn't smart enough. I could study harder. They didn't tell me I wasn't strong enough. I can I can lift more weights. They just said you're a low man on the totem pole. Mm-hmm. Well, how the hell do you fix that? Like how do you fix? I'm the low man on the totem pole. And if 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 you don't understand or you don't have a significance of who you truly are, now you find yourself in this in this wilderness of, of trying to figure out who am I? And I was in that place of wait, everything that everyone always identified me with back from, from high school was Jesse Holly was the star basketball, star football player. And everything, everything that I had gotten was because of that. And so so much of me was in that. And I never thought about the time when it would be gone. And it was a lesson for me that I truly had to figure out who I was independent of athletics, independent of a job, independent of a person, independent of a a city, independent of everything. Who are you, Jesse Holly, as a person? Right. And what do you stand for? And I found that. And I and and it, it was my it was a it was a it was a it was a rude awakening. It really was. And a lot of guys. You know, I, I was blessed to have more talent and ability than just playing football. That was just one of the things that I was able to do. Um, I had actual intelligence. I had actual, like, really, yes. like, sense. Some guys, all they have is the game. And when the mm-hmm. game is gone, they're, they're like, they're just walking around aimlessly 
trying to find what's next and they never catch on. And we hear the horror stories. I mean, there's, I, there's hundreds of them of these people who just don't have anything else because all they had was the game. And, yes. and it's, a, it's a sick place. It's a sick place to find yourself in. And, but nonetheless, I was there and I, I, I recovered from it and, and I found myself and I vowed, I vowed while I was working that security job. And I had a moment in my, in my life where it was like 3.30 in the morning um, and I'm in the courtyard of uh, the tobacco roadhouse uh, place where I was securing. And if, for any one of your listeners who work the third shift, you understand and know that around 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, for those of y'all ain't coming from the club, um, <laughs> the world is silent. Like it is quiet. Ain't nothing going on at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I remember getting on my hands and knees, and it's so symbolic. Uh, if you watch the documentary, you saw. I remember being on my hands and knees, like asking God, what do you want from me? Because I had nothing. I had nothing left. Um, because I was, that's where I was at. I was broken. I was empty. And yeah. that's where I found myself. Like, that's where I found, that's where I found who I was, what I identify with, who I belong to. And that shifted my relationship with Christ. But also that was the same position that I was in, in my big play against the San Francisco 49ers. I was in the same position on my knees, hands raised up to the skies, praising God and saying, thank you. So yeah, it's, 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 if I'm not telling people who to believe in, what to believe in. I'm telling you my story, but I will tell you that one of the things that I learned in my journey is that find out who you are, independent of, of a person, a place, a job, a sport, any of that, because you're going to come a point in time where those things, they, they, they evaporate. Absolutely. And I think a lot of people have even experienced that recently with the pandemic. You know, yeah. during the time period that you're talking about, we were dealing with a recession. Right. And there's a lot of parallels between that recession and the pandemic. Not only that, but what you mentioned about age. There were there was an episode a few weeks ago that we did where we were talking about like that there was a little scuffle that, that the Cowboys had on the field. And, you know, one of my hosts was like, who punches a helmet? And I was kind of like, well, you got to think about the age of these young men. And the fact that a lot of them have gone from being stars on their college campuses to now they're in the NFL and they haven't had a lot of time to really learn, you know, the intricacies of conflict resolution, you know? <laughs> so, so the question of who punches a helmet, like a young dude who's never had to learn not to punch a helmet. Right. Um, and so, so it's like and trying to find yourself. Who will, who, will, who will realize very quickly punching a helmet, one, not only hurts, two, <laughs> come with a hefty fine. So yeah. they'll find that out both physically and financially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's just like you you have to learn a lot of lessons, you know, really quickly. And I think there are some people who end up learning them later than others, depending on the amount of success that they experience. Because I think another way that athletes end up wrapping their identity up in the game is whenever they come in and there's a lot of wins. So like in our sport, one of the things that we say is that wins will cover up a lot of evils. They'll cover up a lot of wrongs. And I think I've seen that with the Cowboys um, in several ways this season. Um, you know, one way I've seen it is just the losses that they've experienced, um, which haven't been a lot by comparison. I mean, let's be real. It's like people are talking a lot about this last one, but it's like, you know, they haven't had any back-to-back -back losses and they haven't had like a lot of losses compared to other teams like the Jets who like real talk. I literally yesterday looked up the Jets to be like, are the Jets still a franchise? I've heard nothing about them. It's like, oh, they're two and whatever. That's why. Like, <laughs> 
But um, so like, first, I just want to talk about like, what, what can that do to a person whenever they're in a position where they're winning a lot, expectations are high, they're getting a lot of praise. And then all of a sudden they lose a game and they lose it due to an uncharacteristic performance. Can you speak at all to like the, the psychological, I don't know, turmoil conflict that might happen to a player who's dealing with something like that? Yeah. You know, especially for the younger guys, like as you get a chance to, and we always hear these terms in athletics and sports about learning how to be a professional. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes people just think that's like, Oh, we'll learn how to play football. No, that doesn't mean that we all know how to play football. We wouldn't be here. You, you know, you know how to skate or you wouldn't be in the rink, right? It's like learning how to be a professional is a broad statement that covers so many situations from, Hey, learning about proper nutrition, learning about your rest, learning about your finances, learning about the game, the business side of football. But then there's that, that sweet spot in the middle of, of how do I handle myself in the construct of the game. Um, because some people come from these programs where you have some players who's never lost. Like Kyler Murray didn't lose till he got to the National Football League. You think about that, like Kyler Murray has never saw defeat until he got to the National Football League. Thanks. How do you handle from being undefeated, always winning your entire high school, your entire college career, then you come and you lose four games in a row? Mm-hmm. Right? Like that, 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 that's a mental that's a mental struggle because you're saying, wait a second, I am not used to this. Or you're used to being in a certain place and now you're away from everything and you're in Cleveland. And there's nothing in Cleveland. There's not a pretty city, excuse me for all my people who live in Cleveland, but you know and I both know, ain't, ain't nothing in Cleveland. Um, and now you're losing. Or when now you come to a place where you went to a small university and nobody really noticed you. And anything that anytime you did anything, you know, outside of maybe got swept underneath the rug, but now you're in Dallas and everything mm-hmm. you do in Dallas is multiplied times 10. How do you handle that pressure? You talk about the mental aspect of this all. It's a uh, it's it's a very it's a very unique thing. And uh, and everybody handles it different for someone, you know, like me. I've been through a lot of trials and tribulations in life. And I've gotten to a place was if football is losing a football game, if that's the worst thing that ever happened to me, I'm good. (laughs) But some people have not had that experience in life and everything has been peachy cream and and football has been that thing. And now they're having adversity in football. They're like, oh, my God, what I do. And you have to understand you're dealing you're now dealing with 60 different personalities. Mm-hmm. And you have to be very, very, especially if you're a young guy or you're a guy who's not really established. You got to you can't just go in a locker room like you did in high school or college. And be like, hey, man, get your blah, 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 together. Don't look at you like well, I will whoop you. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's very it's a very thin, you know, now with quarterbacks. Right. They always have this ultimate respect where they can come and they can say certain things. But again, when you Zach Wilson and you two and whatever. Your voice don't carry that much in a locker room because you ain't done much no. in these games. When you Aaron Rodgers, you can tell a 300-pound dude to shut up, and he shuts up, right? You, you can tell that ferocious defensive end, hey, you're not doing that right. Do it again, and he'll do it again. When you're Tom Brady, you can, you know, you can say, yo, psh, shut up, uh, uh, cut it out, and it stops. But when you, when you, when you, don't, have that, you don't have that cachet, it, it's a struggle. So it's, it's, every person's different. And you have to just find you have to find that place. Get get you know get with some veterans. 
find find a mentor or something like that to, to handle those type of situations because every team is different, every player is different, every city is different. And when you're dealing with the media, every team is covered differently. Yeah. And that's that's something I've been wondering about, especially because it's like in the weeks when the Cowboys win, we get so much content on YouTube. Everything mm-hmm. from the sounds to the sidelines to just uh, not sounds to the sidelines, side sounds of the sidelines to mm-hmm. just extra content. And we get to see so much behind the scenes about how much they love each other and all the joy and jubilation. And I've really been like, I wonder what it's like when things aren't going well. And I feel like they're not showing that side for a reason. It's like people can be completely different, even if it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's like, you know, we see how encouraging that can be when the team is winning. Who knows what he's saying to these guys <laughs> when they're losing? Like I like I remember when uh, Hard Knocks was on and there was a sports talk show that was talking about it. And somebody said something along the lines of like, oh, I didn't know Dak Prescott swore. And I'm just like, if the media is surprised that Dak Prescott said a few cuss words, like who knows how they respond if they catch him like cussing out his O-lineman. Not saying that, that he does that, but I'm just saying like, you know. I, I don't know why they don't release those videos. I kind of wish they did, but I also kind of understand why they don't. But on that same note, um, you know, both both as far, far as their characteristics and as far as like their gameplay on the field, I think it's another area where we've seen how just them kind of getting in the groove of a certain identity um, can kind of be taken advantage of by certain teams. And I thought about this because of what you said. It was two things that you said, actually. One of them was on Twitter when you talked about the Chiefs being a fast team. Um, Because when you tweeted that, I started paying attention. And I was just like, Dak looks so uncomfortable. He literally looks like the game is happening too fast for him. Because that's another thing that we talk about in Derby is just the fact that when it comes to different levels of the sport, one of the biggest differences is the pace of the game and how mm-hmm. fast decisions are made. Because when you get down to it, the moves are the same. A plow stop is a plow stop. A hockey stop is a hockey stop. Skating laps is skating laps. Juking is juking, right? But those advanced jammers, they can juke. They can make decisions faster than lower level blockers. And mm-hmm. so you feel like they're teleporting to a different spot. You feel like they already know where you're going to go before you get there. And it's like, they kind of do. They have enough experience to know, and they're able to move their body in a way to get you to bait to a certain side, and they know you're not fast enough to catch them if they go another way. And so you have to be able to make decisions faster, and it felt like we weren't capable of doing that. And you also addressed the the comment that Fangio made about you know having the blueprint. And when you addressed that, you talked about how AFC teams were preparing for the season differently than NFC teams, you know? And- you know, that was interesting because I always knew there was a difference. You know, there's a there's a reason why the NFC East is called the NFC least among certain circles. You know, there's a reason why whenever an NFC team plays an AFC team, they, you know, they make a point to call that out like, oh, this was an AFC opponent. And so it's like, you know, the playing styles are different, but it's not always obvious, like how different the styles are until you see those teams play against one another. And so what I would say is this is probably my first time during the season where I find myself actually worried about the Cowboys because everything else, it kind of seems like, oh, they can adjust their decision-making. You know, they can choose to run different plays. They can choose a different strategy. But when it comes to speed, it's like, how do you train that? Like the last time the roller derby season was full and active because we're still bouncing back after the pandemic, I was on the B team. 
I was captain of the B team. And one of the things that I told the B team, I was like, look, it's our responsibility to make sure that the A team competes well. And they'd be like, why? And I'm like, because they practice against us. So if there's a type of offense that they're not prepared for, if there's a type of jammer, if there's a type of blocking, a type of blocking that they're not prepared for, it's because we didn't get them ready. So mm-hmm. it's like, we have to bring our best to help them get ready for their next opponent, you know? But when it came to that speed of the game, we just didn't have that. They just they had to figure that out by scrimmaging each other or on their own or something that the coaches would do. But it takes time not only to make mental adjustments, but in some cases you're talking about actual physical adjustments and developing fast switch muscles, you know? And so I'm just like, what is the likelihood that the Cowboys are able to make those adjustments in order to not have situations like what just happened repeat, you know, later in the season or you know, tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to answer your first point is that, you know, one of the things when you look at, we talked about it today on our, on our podcast, uh, Hanging with the Boys, and, you know, when, when Dak at the line of scrimmage and he looks out there, because he sees what the safeties are doing, he says, oh, this is cover, whatever, two, four, six, whatever the coverage is, right? And he looks out there and Amara's not out there. Mm-hmm. And now he has to. And now he has to ask himself. Well, I know when nineteen is out there. I know he sees what I see. I know that he sees this is cover two. I know that he sees that this is cover four. And so we're on the same page just by simply looking at each other. But now when I look out there and I see Cedric Wilson, does said no? Does he know? Mm-hmm. So the decision making is delayed a little bit. Like it's right. a well, right. it's like, Oh, does Malik turn to know this is cover six? Does he know the honey hole he should sit into? Does he know he should, you know, do this or, or go at that pace? Right? And so now he's having that, he's having that conversation. Kellen's ha- also having the conversation of, well, this route, well, this route combination, we only ran it with Amari Cooper. So I really can't call this because it was only run with Amari Cooper. So when Amari's not in there, me calling this play is just a waste of play because I don't know if this guy can actually run this route like Amari can run this route and how I need it, if I, how I need it to be run. So mm-hmm. now, not only is Dak delayed, Kellen Moore's delayed. And now I start looking at my play sheet and I say, okay, what can I call with these players? That, that may eliminate a series of plays. When I was playing, there were, there were certain plays that only Roy Williams, the receiver, ran. There were certain plays that only Miles Austin ran. There were certain plays we only ran with Marion Barber. There were certain plays that we only did for Jason Witten. And so when those guys weren't there, that got taken out. So when you look at the Amari Cooper situation, that was a Friday COVID. Yeah. So all week they planned to have a, a package or plays or whatever with his name on it or running it with him being the primary target of it. Well, those probably got taken out or probably got reluctant to use. And when you're dealing with that kind of speed, like the Kansas City Chiefs, can't second guess. You right. Chris Jones is coming. Chris Jones ain't giving you a chance to figure out is this cover six or not. No, he's coming for your butt. And so that delayed the process a little bit. And then you go to what I was talking about earlier. It was about when you're looking at these divisions, right? The Cowboys are in the NFC East. So everything that they do in the NFC East, everything they do as far as personnel, front office, everything, is to building a team. Yes, they say, I want to build a championship team. But the championship doesn't start until you win your division. Right. So I'm trying, to, I'm trying to see what my division is like, right? I'm trying to see, okay, who are the 
who who are the who are the guys in the division? And when you look at it, when this team was being assembled, Philly had a really good defensive front, right? A young, remember we're talking. We ain't talking about old Fletcher Cox now. We're talking about young Fletcher Cox and Brandon Graham and those guys four or five or six years ago. Um, same thing with Washington, how they were building their front before all that. So now the Cowboys say, all right, we got to have a good offensive line. We got to have running backs. We got to have this. So you build your team to win your division because those are the teams that you're going to play twice a year, every single year. You win those, you win your division, you find your way into the playoffs, and then you take your shots in the playoffs. Well, for us, and the Vic Fangio thing was, he said that teams aren't playing the Cowboys right. And the 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 siren went off in my head. I said, you know what? He's absolutely right. Yeah. But that's only because Vic is saying the standard or the best offense in the NFL in the last couple of years has been in Kansas City. Has been what Andy Reid and Eric Bieniemy and, and Patrick Mahomes has done in Kansas City. So Denver and the Chargers and the Rams, who play in the AFC West who played them twice a year, said, I got to build my roster to beat those dudes. So I'm going to build with good corners. I'm going to build with being able to play man press coverage. I got to get to Patrick Mahomes. And so when he when he did it against the Cowboys, he was saying, yeah, y'all similar to Kansas City. Y'all ain't got the speed that Kansas City has. Y'all got some playmakers, but that, that they got blurs where you blink and those guys are gone. So they mm-hmm. were able to man up, be physical, and get after the quarterback. And we saw how that that ended in, at home against Denver. And then you need to go back and say, well, wow, the Cowboys struggled with a, with a young Justin Herbert in the AFC West with the Chargers. Say what you want. They had two touchdowns called back in that football game that could have been could have been legit touchdowns. Yeah. You might lose that game. Then you say, okay, well, they went to overtime with the Patriots who are in the AFC and who build their team because Bill Belichick knows our path to the Super Bowl now before it used to go through – they used to go through New England. Now mm-hmm. Bill's, it ain't going through New England no more. It's going through Kansas City. So I got to build my defensive roster to be able to go out there and hang with those guys. And, you know, you can say, well, that Prescott put up the most yards against Bill Belichick, right, ever in, in a game. They had to go to overtime to beat him. Okay? Yeah. And, you, and, and, and you got out of there by the hair of your chinny-chin-chin to, you know, That's... to go through a team in, in, in New England. And at the time, Matt Jones then – is not playing the same way he's playing right now. Because if we had to, if we had yeah. to see Matt Jones now that we did five or six weeks ago, yeah, different story. And then yeah. you saw what happened against Kansas City. And now my only thing is, okay, now you play the Raiders, another AFC West opponent who prepares and build their roster to stop a Kansas City Chiefs team because that's the way to the Super Bowl for them. You gotta you gotta win that. You gotta win your division, and then you gotta beat them. You know, in the AFC Championship game to get to the Super Bowl. So. Do I think that the, that the, the the Raiders are as good as the Chiefs or as good defense as you know the Chiefs or the Denver Broncos up front? They do. They got eighteen sacks. They got eighteen. That 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 ain't that ain't by happenstance. Okay, right. They, by luck. They got eighteen. Yannick Ngakwe can get to the quarterback. Right. Max Crosby can get to the quarterback. So just know that you're going to face a lot of what you saw in Denver and in KC. Of they're going to play man to man. They're going to be physical, and they're going to try to bully you up front. Yeah, and we're still without Amari. And Zeke, regardless of what he says in interviews, he's clearly hurt. Like, he way, might go out there, but he is hurt like he's not running the same. Right. Way worse than what he's, what he, what he's given on that. He's hurt. Zeke is hurt. Yeah. 
He's been hurt. I feel like he's had like just injury on top of injury all season and he just keeps going out there. And it's like, I get it, but like, he's another one that I'm worried about. Um, I think I saw a headline that said CD is on track to go, go out tomorrow. And I'm just like, it feels rushed. I know concussions, they can have differing levels of recovery time. Like I've had a lot of teammates and just roller derby athletes that I know that have had concussions and, you know, we have our own protocol for going to, but it, it just feels really right. soon. And so I think those are also reasons why I'm worried about the Cowboys, not only as a team, as far as like their success for the season, but just like also individuals. I don't know if you ever listened to our podcast, but you know, we have like a special place in our hearts for some of these players. And it's just like, yikes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but we'll see what happens now on the defensive side of the ball. Like I want to talk for a second about, about Micah Parsons, just because, you know, he is really showing up on the field, like in unbelievable ways, literally unbelievable breaking records and all kinds of things. And then like off the field, he is like, he just has a sense of humility and it seems like he has like the best work ethic. He's like so supportive of his other teammates. And then just to have all of that wrapped up in one package um, and especially in a in a rookie of all people, I just feel like is really, really special. And so, you know, some people say like, okay, you know, an offense can only, or, or a defense can only do so much. It really comes down to the offense. Do you actually think it's possible? Because like, I think, um, what did he say? It was an interview that I was listening to. I think it was a post-game interview where Micah was like, you know, yeah, we got to do better because, you know, they still scored 19 on us. So I'm like, it was only 19. Like, I think they were averaging, I don't remember what the average points was, but it was 20 something points per game. But, you know, he was like, yeah, we got to do better. And I'm just like, what? So it's like, do you actually think that, you know, the defense can overcome the ills of the offense? Or do you really think that it's strictly going to come down to what the offense can improve upon? Yeah, this is all this team, this franchise for as long as I can remember has been a franchise that's been offensive, offensively based. Yeah. Which is what it is. Look at the money. You want, you want to know what a team – you want to know how a team is built? Where's the money at? Where's all the money? All yes. of the money. They got they, – they pay Tank. He makes $20 million. But at one point in time, Tyron was one of the highest paid players. Zach Martin, another one. Amari Cooper is one of the highest paid receivers. Zeke is still making $15 million a year. Dak yeah. is another guy who makes $160 million. So he's talking about – Probably 20 to some, maybe 20 something percent of the salary cap, maybe even more, is on the offensive side of the ball. That, that, ain't no, that ain't no secret. This is an offensively driven team. You hired an offensively minded head coach. You didn't, you didn't hire Dan Quinn to be your head coach. You hired Mike McCarthy. Mike McCarthy has never been known to be a, def- a defensive guru. He has been an offensive play caller, he's been an offensive guy his entire career. So, to Micah's point is, you know, you, you're going to have to sometimes step up for the offensive woes, but make no mistake about it. This team only goes as far as offense can take them. And, and you know, Trayvon Diggs have done some great things. Micah is just a baller. But at the end of the day, if if you're not supported, right, because even if you look at the Kansas City game, the defense, like you said, we held a 19 point. Defense played well. But – they didn't get any, you know, they didn't get any pick sixes. They didn't get any fumbles for a touchdown, you know, and all that kind of good stuff. This team is offensively built. It is offensively minded, and it will only go as far as 4, 19, 21, 88, you know, 85. That offense takes them. 71, those guys up front on the outside, all those perimeter players, all those skilled players, 
if this team is hoisting Lombardi at the end of the year, it's because the offense carried them there. Now, in all honesty, because people keep bringing it up, do you actually think, <laughs> and you don't have to answer if you don't want to, obviously, but do you actually think they could go to the Super Bowl? Could? Yeah. I mean, there's a, t- a bunch of teams that could, right? Okay. <laughs> I'll take that answer. Uh, that could. The verdict is still out. The verdict is still mm-hmm. out with the Cowboys. And, and, and I'm always of the mindset that you have to – there's always a process of earning your way to a championship. Very few teams just kind of go from being poor and not good to all of a sudden champions. Um, but the Cowboys, they, they, they are still, even now, like the Cowboys, even, even before Denver, even before Kansas City, the Cowboys were a good football team. A good football team. They weren't a great football team. Um, yeah. But – there's no history. We're talking. We're going on a 25-year drought of them doing anything significant in the playoffs. And while the regular season is fun, we should live in the moment. We should enjoy it. This does nothing. This does nothing. Okay, great. You won your division. Now what? Now what? Yeah. Like, if you're going to really be who we think you can be, you got a ball. You got a ball when January get here. You got when it when it's winter go home, you gotta show up. And you know, for, for the last 25 years, the Cowboys haven't. They just haven't. And, and I've been a part of some of those teams. I've covered a lot of those teams, and I've I've been a part of some great seasons, you know, some eleven and five seasons and, and twelve and five seasons, whatever, whatever, eleven, whatever it was back then, was it 15, 16, 17 games down? I, I don't know what the hell it is. But you know. What are you going to do when the playoffs hit? Because that is the only thing that matters. Uh, this all the regular season stuff is great. It sells tickets, and I'm, I'm telling you, enjoy it. Enjoy the wins. Enjoy the roller coaster. Right. Enjoy the way up. Enjoy the way down. Enjoy cranking back up again. That's football. That's sports. Enjoy it. But for me, I, I, I'm looking to I'm looking to January. I'm looking to see. All right, what are you going to do against good? football teams and if we're if we're if we're being honest the real good football teams you either you either struggle with or lost to this football yes. season so yeah so that that's where i'm at I'm, I'm at you lost or you struggled with some of the good football teams and when you get in the playoffs all you're going to play is really good football teams so what cowboy team will show up Right. And I think that's the reason why I don't make a lot of predictions. You know, sometimes when people do, you know, correspond with our show, they're just like, what do you predict for this? And I'm just like, I'm not one to make predictions because I do like to enjoy the ups and the downs, not the downs so much, but it's like, I've been a Saints fan all my life. So you can imagine how that's gone. (laughs) Um, And I think it does come down to like, you just, you just really can't predict. Like, I didn't even want to talk about the playoffs. So we were at least halfway through the season. But it's like, you know, you can anticipate that a team might step their game up during the playoffs, but so are other teams. And then you have other situations that might happen, like what has just happened, you know, where you end up with a star player that's out or a star player that's hurt and they're not, you know, playing the way that they normally do. And let me just say this. Let me just say this, um, because this Amari Cooper thing is super interesting to me. Not that he's unvaccinated and and all that kind of stuff and, you know, whatever. Like, I, I don't. We can get into that. That's a whole other. That's another topic for another day. Right. But this COVID thing is not going away. 
No. And I said it on my Twitter the other day. I said, now more than ever, like this Amari situation, that's not Dallas has been one of the one of the teams in the National Football League who have been hit with COVID related uh, games missed by players than any other team in the National Football League. Okay. And now more so than ever, because you, I mean, I don't have Instagram or TikTok and all that kind of stuff. You have it. Other people, other people have it. And just go watch the stories. These players are outside. As the young people say, they outside. Mm-hmm. They outside. And now we're in the holiday season. If Amari Cooper ain't vaccinated, you think the rest of his friends and family vaccinated? Maybe some, but I doubt all of them are. Right? I doubt all of them are. And as somebody who's a former player, I know around these times, everybody comes to your house. Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Everybody's coming to Omari's house. So there may be a grandma or older auntie or older uncle who's saying, oh, now we vaccinated. We double vaccinated. We boost the shot up. It's going to be a lot of cousins, TT and them, who ain't. And I I'm just not saying Omari. I'm saying Zeke. I'm saying Dak. I'm, say, I'm saying everybody. And so... In addition to that, we're in the holiday season. You see it all over Twitter now. Everybody's doing turkey drives. I, I've seen I've seen at least 10 turkey drives for the holiday season and not one player have a mask on. Yeah. Not one. Now. I've seen that too. I hadn't really thought about it, but yeah, I have seen that. I, I am all for giving. I'm all for charitable stuff. I'm, I'm for it. I'm, I'm, I do it myself. But just know, COVID, and I, and I posted this, I said, COVID is like Marcus Peters when he's playing for the Rams. COVID is in the corner like, I think we're not done yet. Like, that's what COVID is saying. We ain't done yet. And that's the scary part because you don't know when it's going to hit. And the last thing you need to be doing to a game is saying, oh, yeah, Cowboys Cardinals, Kyler Murray versus Dak Prescott. This one right here is going to be for first place. Oh, wait, what? That got COVID. You know, missed the game. Mm. <laughs> right. So, so that that's that's another factor that you have to kind of you don't want to think about it, but it's real. It's yeah. real. And this team has been hit by it multiple times this season. Mo- and we and, and I, we live, I live in a state where we, if you if you just you Texas, Texas, we relax about this whole COVID thing. They'll fight you about these masks. They'll fight you about all that, you know, all that vax, unvax, all that kind of stuff. I'm just saying that, as, you know, it's already tough to win football games. You're already getting to the point of the season where everybody is injured or hurt because it's just, you know, you're 10, 11 games in playing a violent sport. You're going to be hurt. You're going to be sore. You're going to be messed up. And then you add on to the fact, oh, yeah, creeping in the background is this thing called COVID. And even if you're vaccinated, you can probably still get it. Now, there's rules to all that kind of stuff. Vax, unvax, how many days you come back, all that kind of stuff. So it's better to be vaxxed than to be unvaxxed, but whatever. Um, that's still, that still has to be something that sits in the back of your mind that, boy, I hope it's not the week that we lose Tyron because of it or Zeke because of it or Dak because of it or Micah because, you know, because of it. Because it's a realistic thing and around the holiday times when you really start seeing this thing come uh, come to the forefront. 
Yeah, and and it would be one thing if if fans actually looked at players as people and were like understanding, like, oh, you know, they may win, they may lose, things change from week to week. But it's like the thing that makes um, the sports, especially the NFL, such a profitable industry is also the thing that makes people so unreasonable. You know, it's that emotional attachment. It's that whole basking in reflected glory concept. It's like well, people. Look at Jerry. Look at Jerry. <laughs> yes. He was upset. Make no mistake about it. Jerry's upset at Amari Cooper. Trust mm-hmm. me. He is upset about Amari Cooper situation. And he wants the great. Like. Jerry can say, oh, someone broke their leg. It happens. Mm-hmm. Someone twisted an ankle. It happens. Someone broke a It happens. He understands that part. But there's certain things he's saying, wait, you're missing one of the most important games because I don't care what anyone says. That game, an important game. That game meant something. Just think about if the Cowboys would have went out and blew Kansas City out by 40. Oh, Super Bowl, here we come. That's money to Jerry. The headlines. The headlines, <laughs> publicity. Now advertisers want to come in. Now you can charge them more. Tick, people are going to want to buy more tickets. Ticket sales yes. are going to continue to go up. Merchandise, Merchandise yes. is going to keep going up. So people don't think about the business. Side, and, and, and Jerry is always, always about his business. Mm-hmm. Please let me please be clear on this. Oh, he's made that obvious. We talk about he that on the show too. <laughs> business and his bottom dollar. And when you affect or mess around with his bottom dollar, we can go back, we can go back to the to the kneeling during the mm-hmm. protest times. Jerry had a conversation with the team. He would just say, Hold on, y'all, now, 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 now. Uh, uh, y'all can do y'all little protests all y'all want and post all y'all want, but I, I got shareholders and I got advertising. I got people who spend a lot of money with the Dallas Cowboys who don't want to see kneeling. Right. And so for the, for the listeners who might not be familiar with that situation, basically when the, when the anthem protests were popular among players, um, you know, the Cowboys were one of the teams who in, in so many words prohibited their players from kneeling. And I remember people made that a racial issue. And at the time I, I didn't have a podcast, but I remember saying to my friends, I was like, I don't think this is about race. I really think it's about money. Now it kind of plays into race because obviously the closest to Jerry Jones and who are the biggest shareholders are more likely to be white and more likely to be older and more likely to have conservative values because of who Jerry Jones is and his age and also where we are. We have to remember, regardless of what certain counties might poll as, this is still Texas. (laughs) (laughs) Texas. Yeah. And so with the situation with Amari, also for people who might not know, an unvaccinated player who tests positive for COVID, they cannot come back any sooner than 10 days after their positive test. And uh, a vaccinated player, however, could come back after two negative tests taken at least 24 hours apart. So we're talking about, you know, a week plus of a difference as far as when he can come back. If Amari tested negative today and yesterday, he still could not play tomorrow. Whereas if he were vaccinated, that would actually be an option. So that is kind of a big deal, especially considering what you said about, you know, the role Amari may not play in what plays they choose to run and what their strategy is and what that might do to their odds of winning and how they, they perform. So and, and, yeah, and we like I said before, Kansas city, a big, that was a big money game and Thanksgiving, mm-hmm. Thanksgiving, like Jerry strategically has this game where it's at. He wants yes. you around a TV yes. with your plate. It is make, it's not, it's, it's not by accident that they have a three o'clock game. 
not an accident at all. If Jerry wanted the noon game, he had a noon game. He wanted the 8 o'clock game, he had an 8 o'clock game. He is sitting exactly where he wants you to be because most of the sponsors are going to be in that moment, in that time, and everybody's going to be around the table with family. So he understands the value of his time slot, of the day, of the game, of everything. And again, Amari Cooper, you missed the Chiefs game, and you're going to miss the Raiders game as well. Yeah. And that was something else that we brought up because during the Broncos game, when they lost, I was in Phoenix. And I remember um, in Phoenix, they changed it to the Ravens game after the Cowboys went down 30 to zero. And my friend who was still here, she was like, no, they didn't do that here. And I was like, "Mm, probably because Jerry told him not. (laughs) (laughs) And we said it as a joke, but it's just like, I mean it. The Cowboys are literally the most profitable franchise in the NFL. That is by design. Not just the NFL, in sports. In sports, like even more than MLB franchises, I would, I would think. They're, the Dallas Cowboy, Cowboys, this is from Forbes, is the most. Wow. Yes, yes. No other franchise is more profitable than the Dallas Cowboys. Now they're, that is saying work, something because baseball and soccer. They're worth the most. Yeah, you name it. All your, all your soccer team, they're worth the most and they make the most. Wow, that is amazing. Well, I definitely want to make sure, sorry, I held you a little bit over your allotted time, but I want to make sure that you have a chance to talk about Holly's Helping Hands and yes. what that charity does. Yeah. So um, Holly's Helping Hands, it's, it's, it's my baby, right? It's, it's something that I came up with, man, it seems forever ago. I was actually on a plane back from Miami. We were playing the Dolphins and I remember I just, I just felt, I felt blessed, but I felt like I wasn't doing enough for my community. You know, like, yeah, I did some football camps back home and that's what all the players do. I was like, man, I, I could do more. And I remember looking at myself from head to toe and I'm like, just calculating. I'm like, oh, my sneakers are $250. My jeans were $250. I had a $300 belt on and I had a $200 shirt. I'm like, here I am sitting on this plane coming back from this game with a $1,000 worth of clothes on. For what? For what? What does this do? What does this prove? It does nothing. How does this help anybody? This doesn't help anybody. It doesn't make, you know, make anyone's day better. I just wanted to do more. And so what I started to do was I said, well, for every pair of sneakers that I buy, it's to be a huge sneakerhead. I'm, I'm no longer a sneakerhead. That's a, if anybody is a sneakerhead, God bless you. That's a black hole. Get out of it as fast as you possibly can. Um, but I was a sneaker. And I said, all right, for every pair of sneakers that I bought, I had to donate that amount of money to something or, to, you know, to someone. And I thought to myself, well, not just give the money away. How about you actually be behind it? And then I started doing Holly's Helping Hands. And, and what we did when I was playing, um, every Thursday, I would uh, I would take a family grocery shopping. Um, because when I was a kid, I was a poor kid. Um, my mom and dad wasn't in my life. I grew up with my grandmothers. But it was an early portion of my life when I lived with my mom. And I would go grocery shopping in my grandmother's refrigerator. And I just remember how important that was to be able to come home and have something to eat every single day. So I shopped with every family. And then on Christmas, we would do the big Christmas uh, party. I bring all these families together. And that was Christmas is my favorite holiday. And so Holly's Helping Hands, we do a huge Christmas event every single year. And so basically what it is, is that I pick these families who are in need. A lot of times it's single moms, uh, because that's what I grew up with, a single grandmother who um, has children and really just looking for a little bit of help around the holidays. Because, you know, Waking up at Christmas, and I've done this, waking up at Christmas with nothing under the tree for you, or waking up with just like long johns or socks or whatever, that's tough. And, and you know, going back to school and you don't have no fresh gear, no nothing, like you got, you come out with the same clothes you left the Christmas break with, 
kids were brutal when I was growing up. They're more brutal than ever now. And now they oh, got yeah. media and it, you know, they'll put you out there. And it is just, you know, I learned how to fight and joke real well when I was growing up for those very two reasons, because I didn't have much. And either you're going to tease me to the point where I'm going to tease you back or I'm going to fight you. And nowadays, kids ain't even doing that. They're killing each other. So mm. I just try to help where I can. And so Holly's helping hands, man, we find these families and we have a wants list and a needs list. And so they may they may, they may need long johns and coats and socks and all those kind of things. But it's pretty nice to wake up on Christmas Day and say, you know what? I do have a gift. And to go back to school and be around your friends and say, you know what? Yeah, my clothes are different. They're cleaner. They're newer. They're nicer. And I got a little gift for Christmas as well. And so we've been doing that. And this is this one that is really near and dear to my heart. And so, you know, we take donations. I usually start donations the day after. Uh, people can donate all year long, but I usually take donations starting after Thanksgiving. So Friday is when I really do my, my, my push. Um, and I, I have great support from a lot of great people, man. And, and everything goes to these families and we find them from all over, uh, all over the DFW area. And then whatever's left over, I just kind of sprinkle out throughout the end of the year. Like last year when we had the um, the freeze, there was mm-hmm. something left over from the, from the Christmas. Well, I bought hotel rooms for people who were in need. And, and mm-hmm. what started out to be just a, like a, you know, and there wasn't much money left. And, and I thought to myself, well, we'll just do it. And maybe it's a few people will ask for hotels. Next thing you know, we put 50 families, over 300 people in hotels for a couple of days to kind of just wash up, be, you know, be in a warm place, have some warm meals. And that came from donations from people. I was like, I don't know, I'm going to pay for it. It's going to have to come out of my pocket, but here we are. And, and God answered the call and people started donating to that. So we do a bunch of different stuff, man. We pay off lunch debts. Um, we get school supplies, you know, all that kind of crazy good stuff throughout the year. But Christmas is like my thing. Like I, that's the one thing that I really, you know, look forward to doing. So, you know, if you're looking to donate, man, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mr. Fourth and Long. I know you'll have like one of those cool little graphic things that go into the, you know, to the thing uh, at Mr. Fourth and Long. And the, it's in my bio or you can just hit me up and say, Jay Holly, I want to donate and I'll send you the link. Or you can hit me up by email and it's Holly's H-O-L-L-E-Y-S helping H-E-L-P-I-N-G hands H-A-N-D-S at gmail.com. Um, shoot me, uh, shoot me an email there. I'll shoot you the link back and you can donate, man. Everything goes to, uh, to these families. I don't need anything. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, I'm pretty good. And so we just try to do the very best that we can to, and that's how legacy is formed. Um, and that's how my grandmother was. We didn't have much, but what we did have, she shared. And I want people to remember her that, 20 years from now, 40 years from now, they never would have met Yvonne Holly, but they remember being blessed by that football player guy. Right. And that's because of my grandmother that, that I'm, I'm here able to do that today because of her. And I just want people 20 years from now to be like, you know what? When I was 10, this guy helped me out. So I'm helping someone else out. That's how legacy is formed. And so a hundred years when I'm dead and gone, there'll be somebody who'll be doing some sort of charitable work because they were helped by me or my organization years ago and and that's 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 what it's all about yeah those things make a lasting impact and i think we don't acknowledge enough just how improving somebody's quality of life even just for a little while can give somebody hope change their attitude change their perspective and even change their trajectory moving forward just by helping them have a good december a good christmas i'll give you a a quick story and and it's a it's a sad story but it's one that 
it kind of gives perspective. Um, mm-hmm. We we had a family, um, not this past Christmas, but the Christmas before. And someone reached out and said, listen, I, I know a family that's really in need that their daughter is battling cancer. And, you know, they're spending a lot of money traveling to and from MB Anderson and Houston and treatments and all that kind of stuff. They really, they really, the parents really need a break because they're like, man, all our money goes to this cancer fight. And I said, don't worry about it. We'll take care of it. And so we, we I met with the family and um, her name was Ariel. And what was amazing about Ariel, and I'm trying not to cry. Like this is a real raw moment. Um, what was amazing about Ariel was when I met her, um, she was in the first year of a terminal cancer. And there was nothing that they could do. They had they had no answer for her. She was going through these different trials and things like that. And we gave her, she was a part of our Holly Helping Hands, her and her brothers. And the family was so thankful. And the thing that stuck out to me was at the time, the 16-year-old girl who had a terminal illness and lived life every minute of the day with joy. She didn't pout. She didn't cry. She didn't say, what was me? She enjoyed every minute of life. And we were able to give her a, a wonderful Christmas. And she just passed away this past August. And um, when I went to the funeral, I was invited to the funeral by the family. And I never met any of her extended family. Just met her, her, her mom, uh, her dad, her stepmom, and her brothers. And I get to this funeral and they're introducing me. And every family member said, she talked so much about you. She enjoyed being around you. She, you. That was the happiest, the best Christmas she's ever had. And it was just something as getting her some new clothes, sending her to a concert, getting her some T-shirts that she loved, Friends and Parks and Recs. And it was something as simple as that, that she said that she wouldn't stop talking about you. And everybody said the same thing. It wasn't like it was one person. It was like every family member that I met. And that's the impact. That's the impact. And here it is, this, this girl, she, she was, her birthday was, was 9-11 uh, of this year, and she wanted to be buried on her birthday. And she picked the place where she wanted to have the funeral at and everything. Like, this is a person who was dying and had the wherewithal to say, I'm going to plan my own funeral. And everything about her was so special and it was so just amazing. And, you know, that, that type of impact, to me, that, she touched my heart forever. Like, she impacted me forever. And it was because of people who, who graciously donated to Ali's Help of Hands that we were able to give that family that opportunity one Christmas um, to have a Christmas despite everything that was going on. And so that, that's what we want to do, man. We just want to bring we want to bring joy, we want to bring happiness uh, to people who are in need during the holiday season. Wow, that is an amazing and touching and inspiring story. I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you do, both with your charity um, as well as your work in sports media. I really enjoy your tweets and watching your shows. Uh, You're awesome. And I wish we could get into more how you um, got into sports media, but I don't want to hold you any longer. So I hope one of these days we can have you back on and really dig into some of that stuff. What'd you say? We'll do a part two. Part two. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to do that. Bitch One already told me. She's like, oh, my God, like, we have to do this again. And I'm like, I'll see what we can do. 
So look at the Twitter and the email at the bottom of your screen. Definitely give a donation to Holly's Helping Hands if you want to help more people like Ariel and other people in the DFW area. Thank you so much, Jesse, for joining us. I look forward to doing this again. Absolutely. All right. Alrighty, that was a wonderful conversation with uh, Jesse Holly, and I can't reiterate enough. Just you know, make sure that you check out his Twitter, both for his entertaining tweets and also for more information about his charity. Um, and I just want to circle back to you know what I said about the Cowboys and their defense. So, um, and and the reason why I'm doing this is like I don't know how many people are actually paying attention to the Cowboys versus watching other sports, but yeah, so. Before the November 21st game, the Chiefs averaged just over 26 points per game. They were held to 19 points. Um, The average sacks for Mahomes was 1.7. They were sacked three times. And the average total yards of offense was 415.9. And they were held to 370 total yards of offense. And so, like, when you see us on Twitter, you hear us on this show, just like, we love Micah Parsons. It's because, like, he's responsible for a lot of that. And I really appreciate Jesse for kind of illuminating the situation with star players and how that can impact the game. I'm a little bit less worried about the Cowboys, but I'd be lying if I I said I wasn't worried at all. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think I'm going to make my final word just uh, a word pertaining to the game of sports in general. I brought up a term during um, during that interview, which was basking in reflected glory. That is a concept that a lot of sports marketers will use to explain why people become so emotionally attached to a team, especially when that team is winning, you know? And the thing is, it makes the game fun. You know, it's like, it feels good to be able to watch a game and like get a dopamine rush whenever your team is winning. It's like, you really don't have to do anything. You put on the game, have a little food, have some drinks, and then, you know, you have this wonderful time without actually being out there on the field, you know? But at the same time, I think it does end up causing us to remove a little bit of the humanity from players, you know, not only in situations like with, you know, Amari's COVID situation. We don't know the reason that he didn't get vaccinated. We don't know what went into that, but he's getting a lot of criticism for it. But also in situations where, you know, you'll have a young guy, you know, make a big mistake on the field, off the field, and people kind of forget like, yeah, that guy's 21, 22. Um, and, you know, they start being criticized as though they have the life experience of a 30-something-year-old who's been through a lifetime of struggles and hardships and had to learn hard lessons. So I'm not saying that to make excuses for anybody, you know, more so just saying it just to remind people to have fun with what you're doing. Whether you're an athlete or a fan, just remember there's room either way to have fun, to enjoy the ups and downs. You know, don't let the bad games ruin you. Don't let the the good games completely impair your judgment. You know, one of the things that I tell a lot of my athletes um, whenever we experience a loss is that at the end of the day, what you have to do the following week is the same. A lot of times our games are on Saturdays. Right. And so I'll just I'll just tell them, I'm like, you know, at the end of the day, you know, whether you lost or won on Saturday, the following week, you still have to watch film. The following week, you still have to look at what you did well and what you didn't do well, make improvements and adjustments accordingly. You still have to go to practice. You still have to keep your fitness up. And so don't get me wrong. Some games are bigger than others. Some games are going to hurt more than others. But as long as you keep all of that in perspective as an athlete, you know, you have a chance to come back and redeem yourself. And then as a fan, you know, just remember your words have impact, you know, whether it's on an athlete that might read them 
or whether it's on you know another fan that you might be talking to or just the mood that you have around people who are in your life your words your attitude the way you carry yourself you know they all have impact you know making predictions is fun identifying with a certain team is fun but at the end of the day we all have lives to live and we have to remember that the, the impact that our words and our actions and the way we carry ourselves has on those real lives so it's basically my way of wrapping up this show. I hope you enjoyed this wonderful interview. Um, and, you know, maybe by the time Jesse comes back, we'll be doing live shows. We just got approved to do video podcasts on Spotify. That's really exciting. So, you know, I really just want to wrap up by thanking everybody who's been supporting the podcast, following us, sharing our content, you know, helping us get to the point where we have sponsors, helping us get to the point where we qualify to post video podcasts. And then, you know, ultimately helping us get to the point where we will be doing live broadcasts and, you know, we'll have an audience where enough people are available during a live broadcast for us to go and interact in real time with you guys. That would be so much fun. So if you are listening to this right now, the very end of this show, just don't forget to share. Don't forget to like it. Don't forget to give us a rating on whatever platform you happen to be listening from. And if there's a follow button or a subscribe button or a download button, Click all of them. Click all of them. We appreciate the support. Keep helping us out. Um, And remember, bitches love you and you're doing great. That's it. I'm bitch one and I'm out.